episode 15 with artist Zenobia Bailey. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Cowles, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with fiber artist and cultivator of funk, Zenobia Bailey. Born in Seattle, Washington, into a family that survived off of a material culture provided by both the land and the ingenuity of the black homemaker. Zenobia discovered her passions early in life, going on to study ethnomusicology at the University of Washington and later attending Pratt Institute for Industrial Design. Zenobia found her freedom in the funk, and her work centralizes the liberation of the black creative mind. Known for her eclectic crocheted hats and large-scale mandalas, consisting of colorful concentric circles and repeating patterns, Zenobia creates pieces that allow mental space to daydream or dreamscape through the lens of the undocumented world of contemporary African-American material culture. These visuals are mesmerizing and swirling in their own staticness. Zenobia's works infiltrated pop culture during the 80s and 90s, making appearances in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, United Colors of Benetton, and Absolute Vodka ads, and was featured in mainstream fashion publications like Elle magazine. Her work is in the permanent collections of Harlem's Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, the Allentown Art Museum, the Museum of Contemporary Arts, and the Museum of Arts and Design here in New York City. During our conversation, we discuss the African-American homemaker, the power of soundscaping and lullabies, the Black Creative Collective, and what is functional design, and yes, the power of the funk. Recorded remotely and safely, this conversation will have you reevaluating the cycles of life and the power of the Black intellectual mind. It is with great pleasure to introduce to you my friend, artist Zenobia Bailey. I would like to just first of all welcome you to the Institute of Black Imagination podcast. Um, I'm so happy that you agreed to be on and I've been a fan of your work. You know, interestingly enough, sometimes, sometime before actually even meeting you um, and then we met at that conference at Harvard and I became more acquainted with your work and particularly the way that it relates to design and to black imagination and to funk (laughs) and to all of these things. You are, um, you are a walking future present. Um, and so thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Um, but just to even start, um, like, who is Zenobia Bailey to the uninitiated? Wow. Okay. <laughs> who am I? Well, um, um, 
first and foremost, I'm a creative being and um, I'm kind of private, but the only reason why I'm private is because I get distracted when I'm, you know, around other people because I really get into what they're doing, what they're in and, you know, and um, that's almost like when you search something online and you run into something that's a little bit more interesting than what we're looking for <laughs> and then you get sidetracked and you start going off into that area, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, I'm a private person only because of that reason, because I, I'm a deep diver into other people, you mm. know, like, um, even, um, you know, I, I, oof, I, I, you know, cause I just really, I can almost disappear in other people. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but that's that you know, that's not really good because then, you know, I kind of um get um kind of distracted from, you know, where I'm going and stuff, you know. Yeah. But um I'm um I'm I really um love the the um it, it seems like this this is an, another life experience because I'm really getting into the idea that my mind is my own and I can create whatever I want to change my mind. I can really, you know, maybe because I was pretty much the first um, person in my family to um, graduate college. And I remember when um, I was in school, because I went through school on affirmative act, I would have never been able to get into school because my parents didn't have the money, number one, but I didn't even have the grade point, which is another story. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, after I got into school, you know, affirmative action kind of raised all that because they were saying that um, young people coming from the urban communities, we really were at a great disadvantage. And it was really proven because once I got into college, that's the first time I ever got A or a B. You know, mm. and I was trying to figure out, so why when I was in, you know, school, you know, junior school, high school, I only got D's, you know, even if I did extra credit work, you know, and I really thought that I was dumb, you know, I, just, I really thought I couldn't learn. And, I, and plus, I wasn't really interested in, in education anyway, but when I went into college, all these professors were uh, practicing professionals and like the anthropologists were traveling the world and you know you could just gobble their books up and like it was like you know like like i i just really i didn't you know like the thing with the internet i couldn't even um declare a major because like I went to the University of Washington first. I'm from Seattle, Washington. But um, university has so many colleges, you know, like College of um, Science and uh, Medicine and uh, Broadcasting and Fine Arts and Music. I was hitting, I, I couldn't even, I didn't even graduate because I didn't, I didn't graduate from the University of Washington because I didn't have enough credits that were um, focused on a degree because I was hopping from class to class and <laughs> my counselors weren't really weren't really getting me in this you gotta declare a major. I did not declare a major, but what I was doing, I was um 
um, I was an undergraduate student, but I had uh, gotten involved with this um, graduate ethnomusicology uh, program. And I, I got stuck there. I started taking graduate courses while I was undergraduate. And the, um, the department chair really liked me because I was just like eating this, oh God. And one of the reasons why I was so much in love with the ethnomusicology department was because um, they did such a, uh, all the instructors had actually done field work on everything that we were studying. So they would come in with films and, and recordings. Um, there was um, one of the, the department, he had uh, done research on um, uh, Chinese opera or, or, or um, Chinese um, royal court, you know, and, and it's online still, like, you know, to go back and see it. Dr. Um, Regardless, he's teaching in California now still, <laughs> mm. but he he had traveled to China and done all this this um, uh, documenting the uh, ancient uh, the royal um, opera, and then he went to Zimbabwe and he was studying music and storytelling, everything, the whole culture and that and of uh, the Shona people in Zimbabwe. He went to India, and, and he was actually bringing these people from these places to the University of Washington to teach the students. That was one of the things that was so amazing. Plus, too, he, um, he was showing costumes, the, uh, the storytelling, the whole material culture. And that, I think that's when I got introduced to material cultures through ethnomusicology department because of this specific um, instructor because I don't think anybody else uh, teaches the way he taught us really. I mean, learn how to use the, play the, the instruments of these different countries. We learn their songs, we learn dances, we learn their tales. And then he had all these amazing um, films that um, we could actually see you know, the community and everything, everything within those communities were um, handmade and they were so beautiful, you know? Mm. Anyway, that's where I kind of um, fell in love with uh, material culture. And I realized that uh, I, you know, pretty much everybody that was in, in, in uh, ethnomusicology department, they were doing field research. They were, you know, and I really didn't, I wasn't into that part of it. I wasn't, you know, I was into, okay, where can I take this um, information to uh, use as a, I wanted to create, you know, I wanted to design, but I didn't, that's what I want to do. Um, but I just, in love with the textiles, the furniture, the ceramics, even the musical instrument. Everybody in in these communities, they were making everything themselves. You know, even the the, the opera uh, garments. They were made by you know. They weren't sending out where to have uh, these pieces done. Okay, so this thing should be letting me see. Um, but anyway. So I um, 
after, you know, because I, I actually spent four years at the university, but I didn't have enough um, credits for a, a specific degree. Mm-hmm. So um, I transferred. I left uh, um, and I, I, I did realize that I did want to go to an art school. And at the same time, I was working in uh, a community theater, uh, a black repertory theater called Blacks West. And I was uh, an intern doing costume design, you know, and and I was taking some costume design um, courses at the university. Um, but when I was studying costume design uh, at the university, we were doing like Shakespeare costumes. I wasn't doing anything that was relevant to the co- the uh, uh, that we're doing at. Um, the theater that I was working at, we were doing Ed Bullens and Mary Baraka and, um, oh God, I can't think of it. Yeah, but they're all urban stories. So I was really going to the secondhand stores and um, buying uh, clothing for the costume and everything. But I really wanted to make them because my, you know, colleagues and my friends that, know we're working in, in in theater they were actually in these gorgeous costumes you know and I you know they got to the the different fabrics and textiles they can really experiment um, with um, with the uh, uh, with the thousand stuff so uh, I was I got annoyed by that and then to uh, recalling the material culture of these different communities of the study in ethnomusicology, I started thinking, so why is, um, where's the real material culture in the African-American com- uh, community? Because we had one of the, um, inst- our dance instructors at, at the theater was, Zimbab- was from Zimbabwe. In fact, he was connected to the University of Washington too, but he was um, giving us, um, dance uh, lessons and music and, and singing and stories and that whole, we got engrossed in uh, the Shona people's culture, which is very magical and, 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 and powerful. In fact, he told me, and this is another thing that kept me on my path, he told me about these magical forest people in Zimbabwe. He said they're very, very magical and nice. So if this magical, why do we have these problems in the world? You know, like, how come they don't come out and help us and everything, you know? And he really never answered, um, you know, that, um, that, you know, my question or anything. But he just kept on saying how magical um, they were. And uh, he came to New York. He's, he's been all over performing, but he's playing at... Um, Lincoln Center, and I went to his performance, and uh, this man is a one-man band. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he, he's, he's deceased, but um, I remember he went, he was on stage, and he came out, and this, he, he wasn't a dramatic guy in, in person, but on stage, he would come out with this black, all black, he was wearing all black, but it did, didn't really seem real Western, but had this um, black cape with um, red, uh, you know, red uh, interior, um, red, yeah, I guess on the, on the inside. The lining. And, and yeah, lining, thank you. Couldn't think of the interiors. But anyway, <laughs> um, 
he came out and playing this beautiful what you know we thought was a flute and like he just played this whole beautiful 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 song you know on the stage at lincoln center um by himself and then when um song was over you know how you take your hands like you're doing an explosion and go pow out like that mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about he did that and was he wasn't playing any instrument he was playing his hands you know mm. but if you could have heard this music and you know that's when i you know discovered something about us <laughs> <laughs> i said oh my god you know this oh this man were magical, but he didn't call his magic because he knew people that were more magical than him. And they lived in the forest and they pretty much, I don't think they did have a material culture because I was, um, uh, you know, on this quest looking for material culture for, um, you know, Americans, you know, and really since emancipation, we really don't, we have a, a, a neo-colonial um, material culture, you know, and, um, but what I learned from him is we really don't need material culture, but because we live in a capitalistic um, country, we need, you know, to make, you know, income, you know, like you, you make these things to serve you this way and then you sell them and stuff and you were able to, you know, buy your home, buy, you know, just really take care of yourself. But um, the people in the forest, they have another uh, relationship to nature and their needs and they can make, um, their material culture with whatever life is in, in, in the forest, depending on what they, I mean, even up to their medicine. And I'm almost just to another story about somebody that, a photographer that broke his leg in the forest and was doing research and everything. And um, he really got concerned because he was nowhere near um, where he could get, um, you know, um, assistance, medical assistance. So uh, one of the people took him um, to, you know, one of the, you call it the medicine person in, in the village. And he took this feather and he got a frog and he tickled the frog and the frog uh, excreted this, this, this liquid like sweating over on his body. And the, then the guy, um, the feather and he, wiped the liquid off of the frog and he put it on the spot where the I think his arm or his leg was broken because he showed me where um, his arm was broken and everything had been broken and uh, he said he had no pain and this man set his arm and um, he didn't have to go to the doctor and he, he didn't have any kind of all you know and he continued photographing you know Mm. And then when he got back to the states and everything, he and 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 he um, he asked the um, 
the, uh, the I guess for lack of the, the healer, if he could um, take some of this um, liquid with him. And then, you know, they say, yeah, you know, like, and he put in uh, some a container, took it back to the States and he was, you know, he, he was asking the, his doctor what it was, but it, he said it was this um, pure form of um, some kind of something. It was like a painkiller, you know, but um, he he was able to, you know, he didn't even, his arm had to go to therapy because, you know, like he was still, when it, after he got, you know, he, he it was kind of stiff and everything and, you know, he needed to go through therapy once he got to the dates and everything. But he was saying that um, in, in, in the forest, the people, um, and, and the bad thing about these people is they, you know, wanted to get into the modern world, like, you know, computers and um, refrigerators and, and, and cars and, you know, they just got fascinated with the material culture that we have, which, which are killing, <laughs> you know, but um, you got torn between that material culture and uh, Western material culture and also um, that's when I, you know, transferred to uh, Pratt Institute and I discovered industrial design and there uh, I went, you know, into like the history of um, industrial designing for mass production. And that turned into uh, Western survival, you know, like <laughs> you, you got to build this thing or build this comp company so you can, you know, this money and you could, you know, live, but it quality of life uh, kind of slipped away, you know, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, I kind of, when I grad, I did graduate from um, Pratt Duster Design Program because I was more focused then, but then when I got out of school, I realized that I was not going to be working in anybody's studio designing for mass production because my aesthetic was really different and I, I stayed true to my aesthetic and didn't want to simulate because I was seeing students, you know, assimilating to um, the minimalist look and duster design was thinking how they were so robbed. They were paying to get culturally stripped, you know. Yeah. And once you do that, you you have to go to this job, and they don't like you. You know, you're gone, but you don't have anything to um, fall back on. You know, you don't have anything that's unique that makes you different from the other person. Did that competitive edge, which. I felt like I really needed being a woman in that whole industry. So I had to um, maintain my aesthetic, which was, and I, I, I realized that while I was in, in school because I, I was being true to um, the, the aesthetic of, of my work. And the teachers were trying to get me to do all straight lines and uh, some, um, you know, everything's pretty much, you know, uh, straight lines or circles or, you know, cube, cubes. And, you know, I, you know, I could use those, but I had kind of a, a, a include a little 
funky edge to it to make it really fit in some kind of organic um aesthetic to it which which had no reason to it and like you had to explain everything you know even in fire you got to pretty much explain everything and things are not explainable um when you um deal with the aesthetic of funk because it's so organic you're not gonna never do anything the same way twice it's almost like uh, it is like you know jazz musicians improvising and you can have a whole band up there improvising no music at all no written music at all and you everybody's in the groove you know so and it is working with a personal groove which sounds like you know cop out but um that's what it is um because each step you take kind of opens up the way to the next step for the next you know you kind of get colors you're supposed to be working with what shapes or what textures or whatever but you got to take that first step and may and make the third step and then it kind of opens up that whole flow kind of hope it opens up and you kind of um kind of follow it and there is an end to um a project you know i have beginnings and i have ends and i don't really know there no i predict when when the end is going to be but as i'm working it's almost like okay this is capped it's capped it can't go no further you know <laughs> so so um so i had to kind of like um i first started when i um got out of school i started um in craft you know crocheting uh, and uh, from there i went to fine arts because with the uh, crafts you you really didn't have uh, a statement you know you really and i i felt like there wasn't an important statement i wanted to make especially to the african community which i don't think they're really um really picked up on it yet they they when i um, speak of the aesthetic of funk they they think i'm talking about um entertainment and 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 that's the thing about it uh the aesthetic of funk it is but it isn't you know just like george clinton like he is entertainment but then like once you start listening to his um lyrics it's just like scripture and it you know you can get distracted <laughs> by uh that whole thing that he creates you know and um but if you are focused it's extremely fertile grounds you know mm. and um that anybody that's and 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 you know once i got his book i saw that that's what he, he was doing the same thing i was doing he kind of surrendered to his own nectar you know which was funky he he was trying to uh when he came out with his groups and stuff trying to like you know the other groups you don't have this 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 clean kind of neo western kind of you know suits and everything and he said he had the barbershop and they were trying to do their hair and, and it was coming out funky you know even <laughs> when they weren't trying to do it that way so he just kind of surrendered to it and that's pretty much 
where you know he opened up something um there could be a Bauhaus and what um George Clinton uh has done you know um and there only has been um I guess musicians they're studying it as music only but within that um that is there is um there is that's the whole uh um it it, it it's 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 pretty much the because i think <clears throat> excuse me i think music the only um part of african <clears throat> is the african-american culture that, um evolved since we were brought here you know like you know with we they took our language from us but they couldn't take our our beat and our rhythm and stuff and so that evolved into like jazz funk and i guess you can call the blues too but like i think like jazz is like you know like that is something that um is so abstract and avant-garde mm -hmm. and if the material culture was um equal to where um jazz is we'd be beyond um the space age you know <laughs> i mean the science the science and 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 um philosophy mm. even our literature and stuff because we oh here my computer's just not coming up um our um our literature doesn't really you know we're not like in the 21st three yet with mm -hmm, it mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. you know who who does that um sonia sanchez yeah she does those those <laughs> right you know? like she she has she taken yeah exactly it is it, it she speaks through dimensions i didn't quite yeah. i didn't quite get it when i read her when i was younger but like just uh -huh. doing some research earlier this year i was like oh she's she's like actually speaking english in multiple planes at once and she's undulating um you know between you know time and space in 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 the way she writes Right, right. She does. I appreciate you bringing that up, you know, um, <laughs> because, um, yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that really had me not too interested in the um, Black movement is that they never went into design. They stayed in the fine arts, but, um, you know, they ca got up in the same thing that happened with the Harlem Renaissance because the black artists of the Harlem Renaissance they wanted that whole thing to go into a cultural renaissance for black people but um, the 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 benefactors white benefactors wanted the black artists to create Negro art that they wanted to collect you know, and mm. poetry that they wanted to collect, you know, and they wanted to, I mean, just like the Cotton Club wasn't for black folks, it was for white folks coming to Harlem to be, you know, entertained by these black uh, entertainers and stuff, you know, so it wasn't about, because 
it's really horrible what was going on um, with the black artists because they need the money. They didn't really, you know, have any money, and nobody was really buying their art. But then they had these benefactors pay them to, but they had to do a certain kind of. Um, and, and James Baldwin would say, you know, for a long time that uh, a benefactor isn't your friend, you know, mm-hmm. and um, they, and uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, this guy just did a, um, a book on uh, in Locke. God, oh, yeah, so Jeffrey bad. Stewart. It's oh, um, Jesus it's Christ. so good. It's so long. Yes. I'm like I could I'm yeah. trying to make it's so good though. Like it's not because it's boring, it's just so dense. Oh, it's yeah. so dense. And it's kind of heartbreaking too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but a beautiful I read. Was, oh god, yeah. And but I I didn't have that insight of the Harlem Renaissance until um that book and um I think, you know, we got to go a little bit back in time here and recollect a lot of stuff because there's a lot of things that, you know, one situation that we're in, like, you know, social and economic development within the community, that was socially engineered, you know, and um, you can kind of see that, you know, because during the Harlem Renaissance, when the uh, industrial boom was happening in the United States Mm. and... And that was happening because the artists and the musicians and all those folks got together and the craftspeople and they started designing for production, you know. Mm -hmm. But when the black artists came together, I mean, when they were brought together, the benefactors didn't want them to go any further other than to do artwork that would entertain them. And that is, we've been in that um, situation ever since because black artists keep jumping into fine art and not really getting into design the way that, okay, look like something that, the way that um, would benefit, benefit uh, the community more. And um, we, we've been uh, so, socially engineered. It's not because of anything we haven't done because we were kind of ushered into working into, in factories and jobs and all this other stuff. And then our, our, our artists, our creative people, were kind of programmed into going into fine art. And we really were doing, and even our engineers, our, you know, our, our, our brain power was you know, going to you know different research development labs that you know you'll i mean i have a friend he's a um a chemical engineer he said he has about three well at the time i was he said he has about 300 and something patents but they're all with it with company and stuff you know but he the ability and i have another friend he's an acoustic engineer and um do you remember when when the planes used to fly over they would make so much noise you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's one of the engineers that um stopped that noise from you know the airplanes going over so you don't hear that noise anymore, you know mm. and he worked for boeing's um um 
um, Boeing's air um, company in, in Seattle. He was um, uh, an acoustic engineer for that company. And, um, but the thing about it is, well, I don't know if I say all this because I almost identified him because I wanna, I wanna, well, he's a fine artist now. I mean, he's retired from engineering, but he has that knowledge of that engine, of that, uh, you know, he could work with sound. What's know? his name? I don't want to, because I, I, because I, I want to say something. Okay, his name, <laughs> <laughs> friend of mine, and I think he's brilliant, <laughs> and um, he, he's in Seattle, Washington, right now. His name is Ernie Thomas. Okay, and um, he's um, and but then we have a lot of engineers that um, and he was recruited from a black college, you know back in the day and he was saying when he was going to school they you know they really they didn't have good books and like the research was really horrible he did they really didn't have the um the um the, the all the supplies and all 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 they had brilliant teachers you know they had very innovative <laughs> thinking teachers all programmed to get a job mm -hmm. you know they mm -hmm. weren't really you know you know i guess they were saying they were telling them it would really be expensive to start up a, their own steel but then there were grants or research grants that you would go um you could get you know so anyway um our whole thing is don't have the minds or anything um to develop whatever we have it but we're just that that program is so um you know it, it it's 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 it, it's still active you know we don't really you know to be a creative individual because i think as far as a lot of problems that are going on now we could our our, our designers resolve a lot of stuff our writers could you know resolve our poets especially our poets could um resolve a lot of things you know that are i mean in a, in a blink of an eye you know i feel like i i feel like we have that kind of power to do that it's mm -hmm. just that our culture our culture <clears throat> it isn't um we don't it's not at the point we're really uh sustaining and serving us it's more as a recreation, you know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. even I, I, oh my God, it's not in the 21st century yet as, um, as African-Americans, we, uh, and, and, you know, and it's no reason that we couldn't be there, you know, like by the end of this year, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe even sooner than that, you know, but um, there's just a lot of, um, uh going it's good to go over history and find out because that ain't lock really kind of you know all the ducks in a row for me as far as you know why certain things aren't ha i mean even my mother my mother uh could have been an engineer she's really good at mathematics and mm -hmm. father and mother could have been engineers you know uh, my mother was a domestic worker. My father was a blue collar worker. He was a, um, a red cap to trains, um, you know, on trains and stuff, you know, carrying people's baggage and stuff. We were so-called 
um, we didn't know we were poor, but you know, we ate every day, you know, we, you know, had garden and everything. And we didn't have any money, but we were not poor. We, and we had uh, a beautiful, sustainable material called, and I'm saying that to say when I was studying industrial design, we studied the history of American design. And I was asking my instructor about African-American design, and they were, he told me that there was no such thing. Oof. Yes, there was because I was raised in, 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 in you know, this, that was my household, the house in the community that I came from. So that's pretty much is what um, got me into doing this um, research on contemporary African-American material culture, which is, um, that in itself is a real deep dive because um, I didn't know it was going to be this deep. And um because I'm just finding so many areas. I mean, it is, it's so undocumented, you know, like you go to one city and you, you go to a, a, a block and you see that the, the culture is different. The aesthetic in the Bronx is different than the aesthetic in Brooklyn, you know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. And, and, and even like when you get into Brooklyn, you get into Bed-Stuy, you get all these, you know, these different black aesthetics. You got the black folk in the Carolinas and then Jamaica and, you know, all the, I mean, and we haven't really capitalized on it as far as the material culture, a commercialized material culture. It's uncommercialized, but um, to research it, to kind of um, present this, this world, I mean, we have worlds upon worlds that we've been um, that has been sustaining us, mm-hmm. and it's been created by us from you know nature. Um, I I I I found um, book on um, Mahalia Mahalia Jackson's autobiography, mm-hmm. and you know she was raised in New Orleans. What I really, really, really love about this book is that she was raised in rural New Orleans, and she was talking about how they used to make um, their um, their beds, uh, their mattresses from the um, from the moss and everything, you know, from the trees and stuff. They lived by the swamp, and she used to talk about how they used to go down there, number one, to get their food, but how they used to just how they develop their material culture from um, the environment um, down there. And I'm saying, wow, this is the only, I've tried to um, find some other kind of research on this um, material culture of the African-American homemaker, because I think that's where it, it um, really blossoms from. There was a, a movie about um, the women were um, went to Nassau. The um, hit, hidden figures. Yes, that that you know. Once I saw that, you know, because then I I um I think yes, I saw the movie, and um, I you know I said wow they, there was only a small group, a tiny, tiny, tiny group of black folks that, 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 that they recruited for them because um, there, we have, 
and and they specifically after um, black folks to in fact Pratt Institute had a program an engineering program and they were recruiting a lot of um, black students for the program because of the way that I guess we think mm. process we're extremely creative we process information and stuff and then when you get you're working with mathematics. That's another thing. In fact, I think sometimes the mathematics will lock you in. But if you have like this, you know, one like with quantum physics, and that's where the aesthetic of funk comes in, you know. There is no, you're not, I mean, Isaac Newton created mathematics and there hasn't been any other uh, contribution to that whole uh, discipline since Isaac, you know, one man. So who's to say that we can't equate some other kind of, you know, I think uh, musicians are mathematics. They just create with um, uh, rhythms, sounds, vibrations, and frequencies, but they're still doing entertainment. They're, they're performers, you know, they haven't even gotten into the science. Although I see Esperanza Spalding has um, got into, uh, she's, a lot of research on the healing elements of um, music, mm -hmm. um, which um, you know that that's that's where we should be. You know, like our medicine um, is is, I mean, you know the um, how the body's nervous system, and um, if you're able to work with. Um, sound and frequency and vibration, I believe you can kind of bring people out of some really horrible situations, you know, by soundscapes and stuff. When um, I broke my arm twice <laughs> within the past two years, but uh, I didn't want to get into any pain pills or anything because uh, I, I just didn't want to, you know, deal with that. Uh, I was dealing with um, music, you know, when I, for, I, the first time I broke it, I had to get, you know, I had to have surgery and I had to have, you know, plate all in my arm and everything. And um, I didn't, when I came out of the surgery, I didn't want to, I don't want to take any pain pills, you know. And they had in the um, hospital room, they had this monitor and I was going to, the channels trying to figure out what I could find on to help me through this thing because I wasn't going to be taking any, um, you know, pain pills. So I found this the, this channel that had these guided meditations, mm. and it was so beautiful. It was better than a drug, you know. But I had to keep them going on because they only lasted like 15 minutes each. You know? mm. But they had a full chance channel of them and then i was trying to see you know what the title of them was because i wanted to see if i could get on my um computer because i did have my um, phone with me and stuff but it was these guided meditations of nature i guess i had a drone flying slow over these places gorgeous places and the most beautiful music playing. and it took me away from my pain my pain was I was conscious of the pain, but I was taken away from the, I was distracted from my pain, you know? And uh, I've, since then I've been um, um, 
kind of experimenting with, um, you know, pain management, fatigue, depression, and anger management with um, soundscapes and environments too, you know, because I, I believe you can do that with visuals, but, you know, um, some kind of way to kind of, you know, like with, 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 with you know, um, uh, I've been trying with some therapists. I haven't really gotten um, any positive responses. And did you did you say you can do it with visuals? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's actually just use that as a pivot point to speak about like your work specifically and the ways in which you are really playing with I think almost like mandala like yeah um, visuals um, that yeah. are almost mesmerizing and and swirling in their staticness right. um could you speak a bit about mandalas and and what you are doing or what you are channeling um when you're creating these these works yeah there there you know i know you know the mandalas are used for points of um uh, concentration for meditation and stuff like that mm -hmm. if you're a person that um, is into the media a lot. You get distracted into what you know is you know already out there, or whatever, and you know you really can't go off your own mind and stuff and kind of mm. project and stuff. So that they're really um, designed to project, you know, mm -hmm. um, just. You know, help your help your imagination to project. It's, it would it would be good to have them. That's just the visual side of it, and um, the soundscape, which you know, I, I kind of uh, um, my experience in um, ethnomusicology uh, because you know we're we're not really. I don't. I haven't really found any um musicians or that are doing lullabies mm. no they different indigenous uh, communities they have lullabies for their children because you know when you go to sleep that dream time is very powerful you know mm. and you know sometimes depending on what was happening during the day you can think these things into your dreams and you'll have nightmares and then that affects your day and stuff. But if you have like bedtime stories and lullabies, I, I have um, uh, uh, Rashida Bombay, she told me that her mother made up um, night, um, uh, lullabies for each of each of her children. She, she sang different lullabies to uh, each of her children. Can you imagine that? Mm. I mean, she's a production. She's like Barry Gordy. She's <laughs> a production company. She's like Motown, you know, with lullabies, you know. <laughs> but we don't have we don't have lullabies for our children in our community. They have to know that there's light at the end of this madness, you know. And they are the light, you know. Mm. And that could be in lullaby, you know. Like, like it's not gonna always. You're not gonna be powerless forever you know you're going to grow up and you're going to create another world or you can you know whatever but you have a, a a powerful imagination that is yours it's greater than anything that exists now 
you know. Mm-hmm. And um, but we don't have the we we have you know Sesame Street was okay because you know helped latchkey kids you know when their parents were you know uh, taught them how to read stuff like that, but um, and count and you know but it it just really didn't um, take them into you know one time uh, this friend of mine uh, Richard Rose the photographer I don't know if you know him or not. Mm-mm. Anyway, his his daughter, when she was younger, when she was a baby, she was like, she couldn't even talk. And um, I had just got my camera, I mean, my phone, and I was trying to figure out how to use the camera, you know, and I was asking, Richard, really, how do I do that? The, the baby took, snatched the camera out of my hand and turned on the camera. She couldn't even talk then. And I was trying to ask her how she did it. Did it. <laughs> couldn't even talk the baby did this she took the camera out of my hand and started I turned on the camera and started um using it and i was she couldn't even talk you know <laughs> i gotta tell i never told her that but she's she's you know she's she's, she's grown out but like um you know these children are and i have this other friend that uh, she homeschooled all of her children. In fact, gave birth to them all at home too. She had them all, all on a special diet too. She had them all on, you know, this really organic thing. But her kids started going to um, college at 14 years old because, mm. like, they were progressing um, by their aptitude. And they were, uh, when they came out, of school they were studying they would have double majors you know like like oh god the youngest one came out with um some kind of engineering i mean these weren't weren't no lightweight financing and engineering or something like that but anyway they were they would all come out with these um degrees and you know like this is i mean they graduated before they were 20 years old you know I mean, they weren't, they couldn't even vote mm. <laughs> well, you know, when they, while they were in school and stuff like that, but they were, um, they were um, progressing as their aptitude would allow them. Their, their, I remember their, um, their, one of, they would start geometry when they were like eight, nine years old. They mm. could handle it too, because I, I witnessed this, I saw, you know, and um the and she had them doing like amazing things but it, and then like the kids wanted to go to school and you know public school because you know they they wanted to socialize with other kids and everything they went to a uh, public school they live in the bronx too they went to school for about um a year and they said when they went to school, all the kids wanted them to run for president of the school, you know, just because like they were so smart and they couldn't really figure out why these kids, you know, thought that they were so smart and everything. But then they stopped going to, um, they wanted to go back to homeschooling because, you know, the social life, it was a little bit too much, you know, like kids were into, they were, they didn't have the conversation that um, these children wanted 
needed to have now that we almost have to do homeschooling there there's an <laughs> opportunity there's yeah right yeah there is um and you know i actually want to circle back to this concept of of projection and projecting i love what you were saying when you were talking about when we were speaking about the mandalas that you create you know to project meaning that and and I, and I think kind of the not I don't, I don't want to say the point is but the takeaway is that media instagram social media the news dms these are all attention seeking mind mapping entities right that are trying to force a concept or a reality on right. to you and yeah. in your constant feeding of it right like you are sucked into this kind of external perceptive mandala you silence and or deadened or or, or numb your own reality like your own vision of the world and so you are creating these pieces to allow the mental space to do that am i correct yeah yeah so that's that's you know that's that's the that's the the period or the semicolon to that is is you are creating space to to i don't even want to say think because I think even think is an active and it's not about an allowing, right? It's um, like daydreaming. Exactly. Daydreaming yeah. is probably the closest thing we yeah. have to in English, but it's not even quite that because it's daydreaming sounds passive. Yeah, but you're in a pilot seat. Yeah, exactly. This <laughs> is a like very, yeah. Dreamscaping, you know, you're like, you're, you're kind of like controlling this thing where you're going and stuff, but it's, it's like, it's like, um, it's it's a form of daydreaming, you know, to a certain degree. Yeah. What and so talk to me a bit about funk. Why funk? To, to talk to what what is funk? What is funk and what does funk give us? Like you know, we talked a little bit about George Clinton, but like, yeah. give me some. Okay. Like, you know what I, mean? I love I love what you said about jazz, but what about funk? Is funky? Like, yeah. What does it solve for? What does funk solve yeah. for? You know, funk. Off of the path of George Clinton, that's one path that somebody has taken. Uh, funk is everlasting life. Mm. Nothing ever dies in funk. Okay, you take an apple tree, okay, and if nobody picks that apple, that apple is going to fall to the ground. And it's going to decompose, and it's going to go back into the soil. And that's when it gets its funkiest, is it's it's most fertile is when it's, you know, decomposing because that's when that seed inside that apple starts germinating and going into another tree. That That is funkiest. That's its richest for life. Mm. You know? So when you go into that stage of, um, like, when you get to your funkiest, really that's your richest time. You know, like that's your riches, your energy is really, uh, and your, um, I mean, because that's where like music, uh, well, 
depends on how you direct it. The blues can come out of it. Poetry, like visions to help you get out of that hell, you know, if you're paying attention, you know, it comes, you know, that that's the most fertile time of your life. But you have to really, you know, know how to kind of direct that whole energy thing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when 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 plants or anything starts decomposing, I mean, even even our feces goes into I mean, that's rich, mm -hmm. you know, that that, you know, cow manure, Jesus Christ, cow manure, <clears throat> um, you can um, you can purify water with charcoal uh, cow manure, mm -hmm. you know, it's a very rich state, but you could kill you too. You need to know how to, um, you, re you need to know how to work with it. It'll, it'll, it'll take you down, take you under, you know. <laughs> But, but it'll uh, it'll revive you too. It, it'll do it. It'll it really depends. And that culture is really um, powerful. That's where your poets needed. That's where your musicians, your um, writers. That's where your literature. We just really don't have that literature. Almost like um, ancient mystical poems, mm -hmm. you know, like in the Middle East. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hafiz, East. Sufi poetry. Yeah. Yeah, and those those big um, they're epic chants. They're they're chants, but they're, to me, they're stories. They take you away, you know. Like, um, but how how does funk relate to design? Um, or 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 because I know you have a functional design yeah. aesthetic that you work with. What? How does that 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 concept of of being at the balance of decomposition and rebirth, how does that map on to design? Well, I take that um, from the African-American homemaker. After emancipation, black folks didn't have nothing to work with, you know, but, you know, scraps and things that they found and, and, and their imagination and stuff. So they had a sustainable non-commercialized material culture that they created otherwise they wouldn't have existed mm. so um you know family came from the um, rural south you know my, my my mother came from sharecropping people excuse me and um pretty much so did my father so they were really self-sustainable and um they made things from things around them you know like their homes and and everything you know mm -hmm. and uh, especially like you know they're eating and they a lot of canning preserving and and smoking stuff and you know because if you catch things and you know food and um it was you know they knew how to um um uh, preserve it you know like um Oh uh, God, it's, it's it's like smoking um, eats and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So where it could last a long time, you know. But um, they came up with all these different things. I guess trial and error, and like you know, just kind of in a way meditating on it in their own kind of way, mm -hmm. you know. But um, that just just looking at how my 
parents' household was, uh, you know, um, and I didn't really know that we were so-called poor until I went to college and we were studying, you know, <laughs> black communities, ghetto stuff. And when I started seeing like, and, and it's really the way something is photographed mm. to how it looks mm. because the photographer was photographing these interiors from a poor perspective, but my, you know, my mother's house, we didn't have like, you know, different rooms. Some rooms didn't have, she would drape fabric over the doorway and stuff. And we had fabric and textiles and crochet and, and all that stuff all over the place. But if I would have photographed, it would have looked like an installation. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but when, when I was studying in college, it was looking like like it was looking poor. It looked poor because of the pers perspective of of the photographer. So um, yeah, oh, it, that's powerful. It, and, and, yeah, and 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 all the black students in the classes. So, I didn't know we was poor <laughs> because we were we were identifying with the the material culture in the space, but the aesthetic was it it was shot. It was photographed. Um, it wasn't photographed by you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. yeah, and and I just started because I started um, I I started seeing a future because um, nothing was commercialized. Uh, it was all uncommercialized things like you know, God, you know uh, the things that there there was. My parents really didn't have to be in the service industry. You know, they could have been, they could have been artists or, or, or engineers or designers had they had, because like all their friends were pretty much doing the same kind of work that they were doing. But, um, you know, they, they didn't really have the resources um, to, or, you know, like, they they just you know didn't have access to information and stuff to really um change their lives and stuff but and i feel like we're we're like that now a lot of things that i mean one thing that uh one industry that's really i mean is a is a is a is a, is a powerful um, model to me is the hip-hop industry what those children did with just rhymes mm -hmm. you know they didn't even have anything in the beginning like they tapes and, and and rhythms and rhymes and you know they built it into this major industry you know that too that's very funky you know that hustler you know that's a very funky way of survival you you can you know pretty much survive pretty much survive and now i keep on saying with the internet boy you can just you know <laughs> depending on what where where you want to take it and stuff it's like it's it's a it's better than the library stays open 24 7. but then you know you look at the history of art and there's a lot of things very dynamic practices that have gone by the wayside mm. and it was never really picked up by the general um public because of popular culture you know that's mm -hmm. that's really you know we got food and we got you know um you know popular media i mean like you said it's all these distractions you can't 
get in and then the real um the high art of living really uh, material culture to go along with it to uh, make it easy you know like in 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 20s you had uh uh all this this vanity vanity design you know like the liquor uh things and the vanity tables and thing it wasn't about health or anything like that it was about this um this 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 industrial boom that was happening and everybody was living this luxury lifestyle but the luxury lifestyle wasn't healthy it was you know like i mean you could just look it was all aside it was it it wasn't healthy people weren't weren't really eating healthy their lifestyles weren't they were spending a lot of money but um it wasn't healthy I think I think it's I think it's coming, um, but and I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I want to kind of end on speaking about what is probably your most public-facing artwork to date. And you you have, interestingly enough, we have lived with your designs and seen your designs in multiple ways and in multiple platforms for a very long time you your hats appeared in spike lee's do the right thing um you know on the cosby show um even absolute vodka did an ad uh of yours called absolute bailey which is incredible and if you guys are listening you should definitely google it it's really beautiful um but 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 your piece functional vibrations that are the large-scale mosaics at the 30, 34th and 11th Avenue um, subway right. station. So it's the first, first of all, it was like the first subway station in New York in 25 years. Um, and it is underneath um, what is now Hudson Yards. Yeah. And it's interesting because this the the subway itself is is almost very futuristic and futuristic to the point of being stark. Um, it almost feels sterile and you can almost hear like the sound of like tin <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're in the station because it's so stark and sterile, which, you know, from a design aesthetic, people may say is modern, or I shouldn't even say modern, but maybe even more futurist. And it does feel like it comes out of... 2001 a space odyssey um but in the midst of that are these high recessed spiraling mosaics that are yours that are you know swirling and colorful actually i think it may be the only color in the whole station um no really i think right um and so you know it's like the station, both the station and your artwork are in this conversation about design, actually, um, and aesthetics and about um, future um, and, and present. And, you know, one is, is devoid, almost devoid of life. It's almost like an anaerobic AI world. And then yeah. your pieces, you know, you look up, you're coming up these, you know, gargantuan escalators and you're like transcended into this other di- like dimension. Right. <laughs> and it's interesting because I think even in their coexistence in that space speaks 
to a truth that we have not always spoken about, right? That there are yeah. multiple dimensions, that there are yeah. multiple realities happening concurrently. Um, and it's something that quantum physics really speaks about. Um, yeah. And so as a race, as a human race, we have evolved to a certain knowledge, but it is not a knowledge that is, is, is widely disseminated. So could you speak a bit about those pieces both from like a practical standpoint like i know you worked with um you know a fine mosaic company to to render yeah. them so like like just practically what that process was um of transferring mediums um and then also theoretically you know what you are saying or what you're after you know and not even maybe an answer but what is the question you know that what is the question you're asking in those pieces yeah, um, with that piece, you know, I'm I'm still flabbergasted that I I got that project. It's so one. good. It's so it's, good. It's three mosaics, and you, know, you would think they would split them up between three artists and stuff. But to get, I mean, and I've never did a public art piece before, and for them to give me that one, it was. Uh, it was scary and it was mind blowing and I forever thank them for that opportunity because um, and I said I I had to put my all in it because I was very scared. It was, it was a very big project and um, the um, what I wanted to do is it's a gift. It's a gift from uh, power of the humble African-American homemaker, the power of it, it's power there, you know, it's not poverty. And um, because everything in there, oh, those are all crocheted pieces. And um, they, that's pretty much how my mother's house looked mm. because um, we had, um, you know, Seattle is a very cold. They, they don't have summers in Seattle. Like the summer gets, maybe it'll get up to 80, but most of the time it's like 70 degrees. So during the year, you have, in the house, you have to have, um, we had quilts or Afghans on, put up on, on the couches, on the chairs, on the beds, on the foot of the beds. Everybody had about, I think I had about five quilts on my bed all the time. I may not have used them all the time, but they were folded up at the foot. But there's always textiles um, all over the place. So, you know, that pretty much is how the interior of my mother's house looked, you know, because like the, the, um, the, that, you know, that, that table that's in the living room that has, the magazines and you know, on it, it it had this these uh, crocheted pieces on this you know doilies and you know tech the textiles were all over the place and it did look like an installation and I didn't realize that until the first time I came home from being in school and I walked into my mother's house and I saw it from different eyes because I've been you know studying a little bit of design and stuff and it's like a gallery in there too, <laughs> you know because 
all these textiles, even in the kitchen, there would there'd be textiles because you gotta, you know, you gotta, because like our house was a wood burning house. It wasn't even electricity when we first moved there. So that meant only one room really had good heat in it. And the other rooms you had to have blankets or or Afghans or some kind of, you know, something, um, but everything pretty much was um, homemade. And unknowingly, there was an aesthetic thing, you know, and um, I was picking up on that aesthetic, which I don't think um, when people were making them, they that was a high priority. I don't really know, but they all had everything had this everything together, you know, and I mean, scraps would become masterpieces and they, and sometimes like, you know, like if everybody was in the living room or whatever, and you know, if, you, know you go to get something or whatever, everybody goes and, and you'll see these places where people were sitting and they had these, um, these, these, these textiles that are still in the place where the person was, that's where those compositions would come in. And, you know, with my imagination, I turned it into the cosmos because, uh, mm. like, my, my, my family's into um, agriculture, you know, because they're from the rural part of, um, you know, they, they're from, you know, sharecroppers and everything. So they had to go by the sea whenever to plant stuff. And so, and my mother kind of based everything in the household by the farmer's almanac, you know, when we got our ears pierced, you know, the, the signs of the moon and different different things, you know, that was happening. Like I was saying, my father would take us fishing depending on when the schools of fish were coming through because like they were kind of governed by the cosmos too. So, you know, one of the one of the um pieces in there is uh new life coming to the planet, you know, I, 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 I don't really talk about it that much, but, um, you know, our life comes somewhere and it goes somewhere. Cause I was going to have one, well, I have one coming, going to have one, um, astro leaving, you know, of, you know, like leaving, you know, going wherever, but, it just wouldn't it wouldn't fit in so i didn't really put it put it in there but um and then i was thinking that was going to be um kind of like a memorial for the world trade center mm. but um you know i just put other kind of things in there and i have some you know records like i have aretha franklin's and um Benny King's uh, supernatural thing, because I see this whole supernatural thing. We should be here, be there by now in 2020. You know, hmm. as human beings, we should be there by now. We should be, we should be really grooving and in harmony with the planet and with the cosmos. Really should. And why aren't we? Too many distractions. Too many distractions <laughs> you know luxury um uh just exciting things and you know you re there's just too many distractions and it's and it's really 
I mean, and that, that that's that's what keeps, you know, the worker bee. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Um, buying all these different things or whatever, but um, it's um, it's 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 a lot of distractions. And then, too, um, you know, being that I, I I don't go out that much, I had to start doing my own gym inside. You know, like and I didn't really have equipment or anything, but you know, and I decided exercise every single day because you know before like, you know when you're moving around a lot you know you're getting a lot of exercise and I didn't really have to I would exercise every so often but now it's mandatory that um, I exercise every day and I'm really seeing a major result from it you know what's and the just, result is it a physical one or is it a mental one? Oh, mental physical I'm toning up I'm feeling my core I never really felt my core before, mm. like, like you know, my core. You <laughs> 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 know, um, so uh, I didn't know I ha- had a core. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, that that comes from exercising every day, and then you know toning your muscles, and you know um, your bones get stronger and stuff. And then you have to eat a more, you know, mm-hmm. because you know you're using up all that energy. So you're really um, activating your. Uh, and then to oh yeah, when I eat certain food, I, I can recommend a good food to eat for your brain is red quinoa mm. it's almost like you know what 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 spinach was to papa <laughs> to your brain it is like amazing the first time um because it has a lot of uh copper in it you know that's a, a um a metal and it's really when um it's, it's really uh it's a brain food to me and you know like especially like if exercising too and a lot of water and stuff it really you know you, you feel the mechanism of your system you know mm. but acknowledging the body in, in a different kind of way you know because it is like a gift you know mm-hmm. oh the body oh yeah oh the body is the ultimate gift yeah it's um i remember this phrase that your body is the most beautiful and expensive thing you will ever own yeah and the maintenance can be high but it's not that kind of high maintenance because the more you do it the more you want to do it you know um but you know and and i and i I don't think it should be called high maintenance because i know people you know have fabulous this cars i know people that have these beautiful homes and they put more work to their homes than they do to their bodies you know in fact they're not healthy and they're you know <laughs> doing all this you know work in their beautiful homes and stuff but um yeah it's a gift that will really serve you well my god you know like it'll it really serves so you want to be able to get um to those for real golden years where those years are actually golden. So take care of yourself, um, you know, 
all the way through. I mean, even while you're younger, it's really good because you have all that energy and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like, I'm mean, just really enhances everything even more. But, you know, as you grow older, like, really, you know, your activity is still high, your energy is still there. And, you know, you just have this living history that you can, you know, have access to. And then you know, hopefully your community is there with you, you know, and um, just taking care. And, and I think that's one thing that our, our, our community is, is really needs is wise and 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 healthy elders mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. able and, mm-hmm. and, and have the energy to uh, interact with young people, you know. Yeah. And you know that are well traveled and well read and well experienced. I mean, they've done a lot with um, their own personal work. They have a lot to um, set on, you know, like um, for the next generation, so they don't have to be repeat stuff, you know. What was the, what was the biggest surprise in your sixties? Like what was the, what, like what is like? Oh, I did not expect it to be like this. It's open field. It's open field. It's never um, set. Because I remember um, when I when I got a creative um, capital um, grant, uh, they asked me to do. Uh, a five-year projection of where I'm going to be in five years. And what I projected was nowhere near what um, what was going on, you know, three years after I, you know, projected that. Because, like, I, di- I didn't know about windows of opportunity that present themselves, you know. That wasn't part of my education. They were saying, okay, like, you plan this to do so whatever whatever end up here but in life there are windows of opportunities that come along just like the um the thing for the um some yards i was shortlisted for that i'm gonna apply for that in the beginning i was shortlisted me and um four other three i think it was three other um artists were uh, shortlisted for that and then, you know, they ask us to do proposals and um, I got it and they never projected to even want to do anything that big. I could have never, you know, I, I didn't see myself in that category, but what I had projected is I wanted some property out in some rural area where I could have, I wanted to have access to a barn and I wanted the barn to be my studio and I wanted to have 25 head of sheep because I had um, gone to these sheep and wool festivals and I saw these coats of these sheep and I never saw um, coats of so beautiful and I saw the sheep that Ralph Lorenz was his sheep where he made his uh, men's sweaters from the coats of these sheep were so beautiful. And then the groomer was telling me how he fed the sheep. And I was thinking about getting me, you know, because sheeps were about $250 each back then. I was thinking about getting like 25 heads and, you know, had a groomer take care. I wanted the same groomer that was taking care of Ralph Lorenz's sheep, you know, because <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I wanted that, um, 
that wool. But um, so that's what that's what my projection was, was to have this little kind of like small ranch and I grow my own everything, you know. But uh, it took off into this other thing, this other quest because of the windows of opportunities that, that came along, you know. Yeah. Um, that 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 were opening um opportunities to you know this future quest you know and and and, and i had the aptitude to deal with it because you know sometimes you don't really know uh what the depth of, of your aptitude and um mm. i didn't know that i could um future project like i can Mm. You know, and I think everybody can, because in, in, when you're a child, you know how to play. I think the biggest, is, I I think I started um, believing in um, what I was born with, or no, uh, depending on it as for survival. It was kind of like, um, I don't know. It it, it was. Um, not really um the external wasn't all that um as 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 sustainable as i thought but it's more about the internal thing um how you're like guided to do certain things or you know and it's really how you respond to different things that you know because you can have windows of opportunity that opens up to you and you just don't take it you know because i almost didn't take the um the hudson yards project and i don't know where i'd be if i if i hadn't had that but um, you know even with i went to university of washington you know as an affirmative active student you know like you know, I had a job at, 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 at an insurance company and everything. And, you know, I, I if I hadn't done really changed life, that was a window of opportunity. I would have never um, thought that I would have because I had a, I was a D average student and, and my, I didn't have any money, you know, we were poor. So like going to a university was totally out of it. So it wasn't even, so you can't really believe in your circumstances, you know, like you just, you know, there's your, your windows of opportunity will surpass your circumstance. You know, you may not be qualified, but that mean anything. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of situations in life that um, qualifications weren't it, you know, God. Yeah. I could tell you some stories, boy, but like it's not about it's not about um windows of opportunity to swing away, get find you somewhere and then that window opens up and you gotta jump through that window because it's not gonna be there because all of the windows of opportunities that I've had, they've closed up, you know, behind me, you know. Mm. Um it's you know, it's you know, I, 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 every one of them, I, I never had the qualifications to um, do them, but not to say don't prepare, Ooh. you know. Come on now. Yeah, do do as much preparation as you can, because when that window of opportunity comes, it's going to take you way over, 
you know mm-hmm. it's gonna take you and, it, and the more prepared you are you know like life isn't as limited as um i thought it was especially if you and then too i also realized that creativity can be created if you think that you're not creative that can be cultivated you know? i'm sorry you said creativity can be cultivated yeah mm-hmm. yeah because if if you if you can see things that you have taste for seeing things that means you can cultivate that up into something else you know you can cult that into either designing because it it, it takes um your gaze mm-hmm, mm-hmm. first stage of creativity and um mm-hmm. i didn't i didn't i didn't see that and i think that was you know from coming you know being in art school and being with extremely talented students first i was intimidated by them but then i realized there's something i could learn from this you know experience that is about cultivating because all of them cultivated themselves to get to um where they were and um I would see, you know, folks start out with really crude projections, but then, you know, I would see these beautiful creations would come out, really highly sophisticated creations that would come out from just um, letting that um, passion come through. I think believing in your passion too. Yeah, that's, your passion is something that, um, can't let go you know because mm-hmm. i know many artists that surrendered and started working at the post office because mm. making money and stuff you know but um you know, um sometimes you just gotta go through the fire yeah you know i did you know it, it paid i because I, I i can't get jobs like that i can't take those tests you know i mm. i'm not good at tests so um, I had to make this work. So mm. you know, I I have more offer to offer, um, being creative than I would at you know because I was a file clerk at an insurance company, you know, mm-hmm. before school, and I probably would have tried to work myself up into the um, company and stuff, you know, but um, school came along, you know, affirmative action, and I take advantage of it you know i was just so amazed you mean i could kind of be you know choose a profession you know that was really something Hmm. um yeah um and then i think also you know that taking good care of your body i think is you know something um just this prime you know, it's, 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 it's like, I don't know. And, and, and when you really think about it, it's not really that expensive to do it, but it's just, um, consciousness of, of just, doing it, yeah, know? it's a matter of, of staying conscious and, and just present really, you know, I think so much of, so much of, of the destruction that we do both actively and passively has a lot to do with just not staying present 
um, you know, not listening to what our body needs in the very moment um, instead of just running a script, um, right. you know, and, 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 and running a script that may not even be our script. Right. You know, we may be running someone else's program on our on our uh, hardware. Um, but anyway, Zenobia, this has been so incredible and so enriching. We've spoken f- for so long. I'm going to have to, it's going to take me two weeks to edit it all down, but it's so, it's so rich. And I just want to just, first of all, thank you. And then secondly, just acknowledge you for, for all of the work that you've done, not only you know, in the public sphere, but, you know, for your own self and, and the joy that you bring to so many of us, um, which is a reflection of, I think, just the fun that you seem to be having living this life. Um, and so I thank you and appreciate that. And then also for creating, creating these mandalas, creating these, these static vortices vortices yeah vortices um you know like your work under you know at the hudson yards i mean you have literally taken this plot of unchecked capital yeah and power you know you know you have taken this plot of 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 the density of all that is wrong um, with our economic model, and you have literally like supplanted this this black imaginative vortex in like the womb of the thing. It's like a sta- it's like a static spell that you've cast. That will forever bring a level of humanity to, to you know, to a hyper-capitalistic circus, essentially. Um, and you've done that, you know, you know, consciously or unconsciously. Like you, like literally, and like it's position, right? Like it's not, it's not up there with the with the golden shawarma. Like it is literally in the bowels and the belly of this thing. It's in the womb, and it's untouchable. It's untouchable because it's in the ceiling, oh, yeah. so it can't be defaced with you know, some somebody's you know un unheld bladder or uh, you know, you know chewing gum. Like <laughs> it, it literally will forever be untarnished because it's actually uh, literally out of reach. <laughs> right. Thank you. Can I say one thing. Yeah. About of course. Of course. You, um. You know, uh, uh, um, you were asking about what I realized, you know, in my series, like, I realized that fame was not it, mm. you know? I used to think, like, oh, I want to be a famous whatever, a famous artist. And I found out that that was a distraction, too, because, like, you know, when you hook up with a gallery and all that, you, it takes away your freedom, you know, mm. your creative freedom. So, um, you know, fame works for a lot of people. I have, you know, a lot of friends that I love are famous, you know, and they love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
there's a there's another uh, joy, you know. <laughs> another, kind of, another kind of glory, you know. Yeah. And it's not, it's not fame for me. It is for some people. Fame is it for um, people that really handle it well, you know. Yeah. What's that other joy? Can you describe it in words? I know sometimes things, you know, words kind of cu sometimes cut off the very thing you're trying to express. But it's a joy. Uh, it's a joy when, like, you forget to eat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're so caught up in it that you're be you're being fed off of it. You feel it in your bones. <laughs> you feel it in your, you know, skin. It's kind of like it covers you mm. it's really something you know mm. but um well i love that i think that's a really beautiful place to end you know it's 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 um you know in the christian tradition they say this joy that i have the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away Ooh, that's so true I didn't get to ask you any questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We can. I'll, I will formally end the podcast like portion now. And if there's a qu question or two, and then I do have to hop off the phone. But if there's a question or two you want to ask Zenobia, I am here. What's the question? I Give it to me. <laughs> Well, that was such an enjoyable conversation. Um, Zenobi and I were literally on the phone for four hours, which is insane. I couldn't believe it. Um, but thank you guys so much for tuning in. And tune in next week when the tables are turned and Zenobia actually asks me questions. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with someone that you think would really benefit from this conversation, and be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, which really helps out a lot. Um, shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast and on Twitter at Black Imagination. That's B-L-K Imagination. And if you would love to support this work, and we would love for you to support this work, please click the support link in the show notes. Thank you all so much for listening in on this in-depth and wide-ranging conversation with Zenobia Bailey. And as always, remember that Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.